Welcome to Changemakers in Autism. I'm Chantelle Walker. I'm Jen Fast. We are with Reed Autism Services. We're going to be talking to and about changemakers, people who have refused to accept the status quo in autism. And today, we're talking about inclusive housing. I'm really excited about today. Tell me why, Jen. Well, I saw our guest speak at a conference in November, and she just blew me away. Um, I'm sort of in awe of her and her team at the Kelsey, including our other guest today, Isaac, and um, I'd like to give them an opportunity to introduce themselves. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having us. Um, we're excited to be here. Uh, my name is Michaela, and I am the co-founder and CEO of the Kelsey. Um, our co-founder, my cousin Kelsey, um, and I grew up together um, and really went through every life milestone together, um, including in our 20s, both being a very desperate to move out of our parents' home and have our own life in the community um, and realized um, through that process that, you know, what took me six months to find community-based housing took Kelsey and her family almost six years. Um, and um, Kelsey's uh, challenge was not unique to her. And in fact, um, really an example of a much larger um, and systemic issue around the lack of housing access for adults with disabilities, especially adults with disabilities who use supportive services. And so um, I'm sure we'll talk more about the Kelsey, but, um, but that's uh, what brought me here into this work and grateful to do it um, alongside a really awesome team, including folks like Isaac. So my name is Isaac and I'm the communications analyst at the Kelsey and what I do is I do post all the social media posts when you look at the which when you go to social media sites that, Kel, that the Kelsey uses all the posts are being posted posted by me and then I got involved with the Kelsey because I through my housing struggles I saw that there's a need for more housing for people with disabilities and how it's hard for people to find housing and how it's difficult no matter where you live it's difficult yeah well, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate sure. it. I bet so, specifically in California, it's difficult. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you actually sort of already touched on the why. So <laughs> I think that um, maybe you could expand a little bit more. So Kelsey's your cousin. It took her six years to find housing. It took you six months. Um, so that's the beginning of the why. But why did you create your own? Why did you see what was happening and say, this isn't working. I need to step in. I need to do more. Yeah. Um, so I think a couple things um, that led to that. So in that experience of seeing Kelsey um, and her struggle to find housing, I learned kind of a couple things. Um, the first was, frankly, that actually Kelsey, um, and we talk about this a lot on our board and as an organization, is like in a lot of ways, Kelsey was among a privileged few. And in fact, you know, once her actually finding housing um, was a huge blessing to her um, and her family, but that, that ability to do so was also colored by the fact that she, you know, lived in an area with resources, had a family with resources, both financial and the ability to navigate a system and advocate for her um, in an area where there was a great agency and, and service provider. And so um, in fact, like Kelsey, you know, you know, and, and she was white, um, and, you know, so there was a lot of pieces that allowed Kelsey eventually to cross that bridge into housing that um, that is, a, you know, what is already a challenge among housing for people with disabilities um, is particularly a challenge when you look at intersectional issues of race and economic opportunity um, that folks with disabilities who are low income and from communities of color, you know, what's challenging for all folks with disabilities, you know, is multiply marginalized um, through our systems for, for other individuals. 
So that was sort of one key why. The next why is, you know, going out. So I spent time as a graduate student researching different housing models across the country. And I saw kind of two key things that, you know, really gaps in the system that we wanted to, to solve at the Kelsey. The first was that there were a lot of interesting one-off developments. There are more now than there were then, but there were a few interesting one-off developments, um, but nothing was really scaling. And it was a lot of, you know, smaller parent-founded models that were really delivering, you know, excellent quality housing, but were serving, you know, 20 people or even 100 people at a time, but we have 61 million Americans with disabilities, like we're not going to solve this issue. You know, the Kelsey has over 240 homes in our pipeline. We're really proud of that. And we know that that's not even coming close to meeting the need. And so one was the need for an organization that connected practice to policy, both demonstrating what works on the ground and building new models of inclusive housing, but also connecting that to the systems, policies, and programs that can create like the market conditions and policy systems for these type of housing to exist at scale. And so embedded in the Kelsey's theory of change is this idea of building communities and changing systems, um, that we really want to have that feedback loop of demonstrating what works, meet immediate needs, but let's go upstream and think about how we, we make the conditions so that our developments aren't unique or special, um, but our developments become the norm and other people are able to do the same types of work in, in their own community. Um, and the third really important why, and, and maybe I'll kick it over to Isaac for this too, is really around inclusivity. So I still, back in when I started this work in 2014, 2015, and frankly, unfortunately, still today, we continue to perpetuate segregated disability specific models of housing. And we continue, you know, and I say this as an allied leader without disabilities, we continue to make a lot of decisions around how housing happens for people with disabilities with no people with disabilities at the table. And so that was also embedded from the beginning of saying, we only promote integrated inclusive housing and that's what we're creating. That's what people want. That's what the policy mandates. That's what the future must be. And it must be co-created by people with and without disabilities. Yeah, so inclusivity is important because people with disabilities deserve to be, to be living in the same uh, buildings as non-disabled people. We shouldn't just section them off and say that they have to live, they only get to live here because, because you're, you don't consider the, consider what society considers to be the norm in society. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. Something that I think you or your colleagues said at the conference was build with us, not for us. And I think that's really important for anyone who's on a journey into inclusive housing to understand. Because you want to build with our voices being the lead in the uh, in the construction. So they just build the way we want to see that way we want housing to be built, not based on what the developers think is what we want. Because we as individual disabilities are the only ones who know what kind of housing we want. Developers can can't read our minds, so they don't really have the best ideas in mind in in mind of what housing works best for people with disabilities. Do you want to share a little bit? One of the ways that we do this at the Kelsey too, and there's a lot of different ways we embed um, leadership in our work some on our staff, on our board, on consultants, but one of the other things we have for both of our existing housing developments and something we advise other communities to do as well is form a community advisory group. Yeah. Do you want to explain what the community advisory group is? Community advisory group is they advise, uh, they, uh, they're people from the community of where the projects are, the two projects are located and they advise 
that project about uh, the different things that go on with the project. So they get to see some of the uh, designs of what the building it may look like, and then they get to give their input on that and what they may want to see and what they may want to see taken out and what might be better put in place in an area of the building. And Isaac and I actually first met, he was a part of one yes. of our community focus groups and workshops. Um, that was another thing. I'm happy to share more on that, but that was how yep. we first got to know each other. And we met each other at a focus group at the Ark of San Francisco, because she happened to come in because she was going around California at that time, going to programs for people with disabilities and getting ideas from people with disabilities of what kind of housing they wanted. And she had it set up where they could either verbally say what kind of housing they wanted or point to pictures and images of the kind of housing they wanted to see. So. And the rest is so history. Michaela, did, did you feel that you really had to um, had to search for some of your community advisory group members? Was that was that difficult to find people to provide input um, through each step of the process? Um, I wouldn't say it was difficult, but I think we had to be intentional about it. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, like Isaac mentioned, we also talk about community outreach in sort of um, three different types. Um, one is like early focus groups around, so we did this whole process in the Bay Area starting, um, it was what we did even before we had a site, we called it Together We Can Do More. Um, and we, Kelsey's favorite sign was more. So you'll see through the Kelsey, the word more is used a lot and, and that's why. Um, but Together We Can Do More was a really intentional community outreach process, really pre-development. Pre we didn't have a site yet, but we knew that we wanted to build inclusive housing in the Bay Area. And we we defined categories of stakeholders that were impact that would be impactful in creating these type of communities. So, you know, people with disabilities, service providers, family members, um, who else was there? Public policymakers and, and uh, architects, architects, um, funders. And so we had categories, very specific housing developers, specific categories of people who could impact housing development. And we invited them to um, regionals. We had a, we are in the base. So we've kind of different areas. We had a South Bay, a San Francisco and an East Bay team. Um, and those teams, you know, made up of those different stakeholder groups participated in a three-part process really intentionally of defining the problem. What were we trying to solve for? Aligning the resources. What resources did the different people around the table have that they could bring to the, the solutions that we wanted to create and then envisioning the solutions where the group actually designed, we had a workshop and they actually designed different private shared and public models of housing um, for, that was inclusive. So that's like general focus groups. And then once we actually had the developments underway, then it was the community advisory groups that were more specific to a project. So in San Jose and San Francisco. So, you know, yes, for both of those, we had to define who did we need around the table um, and go out and figure out like where, how did we access that, you know, what circles were those people already in? And then I would also say that in, you know, both of those areas and, you know, we've also need to be intentional about, you know, not mirroring, you know, just one type of person. So making sure that we directly reached out to groups, you know, a lot of like dominant service providers, for example, that we first connected with were, you know, middle-income white individuals. And our housing is intended to be mixed income, extremely low income representation and, and very racially diverse. And so if we had a community advisory group that was entirely made up of white folks, we're really not honoring the, the, the ultimate population we want to serve. So we did have to do some intentional outreach too, to make sure we were, you know, reaching out to those communities of folks who maybe sometimes 
aren't typically showing up at these discussions because they haven't been directly invited and, and making space and, and inviting folks to the table. I think that's so important. And I'm, I'm very impressed that of your 240 homes that you have in your pipeline, um, that all happened you know, pretty quickly. So I'm, I'm so curious about how you leverage um, you know, public, private, and, and philanthropic support to get that done so really so quickly. So we um, we are really fortunate um, to have um, from the beginning focused on how we leverage philanthropic dollars together with um, lending and public funding. So that was also kind of going back to the why. It was really interesting because, you know, I would say that a lot of the examples I saw initially, you know, back in 2015 were either 100% philanthropically funded or 100% publicly funded and not as much the blend. And that became really apparent early on that we were going to need both. You need philanthropic dollars to you know, test new models to move things faster than perhaps the subsidy is available to, to do things that subsidy isn't yet set up to do or isn't targeted yet to do. But you need public dollars if you really want to achieve scale or like reach the deepest affordability or reach the highest number of people. And also to mainstream this issue into a, housing is a highly subsidized, publicly invested in area. And we don't want to accidentally create disability inclusive housing as a separate system. We really want to make sure it's mm -hmm. infused into our affordable housing and market rate housing pipeline. And so you don't want to kind of say, oh, we're over here 100% philanthropically funded and you all keep doing your thing. Um, so we really intentionally tried to braid those two areas together. Um, we've been, um, you know, our supporters range from generous individuals to, you know, some of our um, regional and national foundations, both, you know, with, um, you know, some of the corporate funding too being here in the Bay, you know, we're supported by, you you know, Google and, you know, the Chan Zuckerberg initiative and, um, you know, nationally at the Ford Foundation and Weinberg Foundation. And I'd say that some of those funders support our housing development work and others specifically support our advocacy around disability and economic justice as it relates to housing. So they have different, different focus areas. Um, and just on how the funding is leveraged, you know, in using our San Jose project as an example, the community organizing funding and the first deposits on the site and like getting our site, that was all philanthropically funded. We used, you know, about $300,000 that we had raised philanthropically to be able to do that community organizing and acquire the land and, and put our first deposits on. Then we had a loan, a pre-development concessionary loan, concessionary meaning it was still a loan. We fully have to pay it back, but it's at a lower interest rate and they were willing to take a little more risk. Um, and that loan has gotten us through to our full financing. And now for that about $74 million project, um, out of that total 74 million, um, about 72 million is a mortgage and tax credits and public subsidy from the city of San Jose and the state of California and 811 vouchers. And then we also put in the final $2 million in gap funding that the Kelsey raised from philanthropic sources. And that allowed us to get across the finish line and fund the project in full. But it also is what helped us include some of our deep income targeting for disability inclusion. And it's what let us embed our resident services model or add accessibility features in the building. You know, our hope would be in the future that public subsidy is 100% and it allows these projects to do this through other funding and 
incentives, but for the time being, and that's what our advocacy work is focused on, but for the time being, um, we're, we're closing that gap through philanthropic dollars, but it's pretty good leverage for philanthropy where, you know, if you put in every dollar raised by philanthropy has 10 to 20 X in, in real value of the other housing funds that it unlocks. And I think we're interested in hearing a little bit more about your resident services model and, and particularly, um, I want to know more about your inclusion concierges. I, I, I want to know what this concierge does and, and what this looks like. Cool. I'll let Isaac start and then I'll fill in. So we already, so this is already in place right now at the, uh, at a project in open. What's that called? Atlas. It's called Atlas. And what what the uh, Cousin Concierge does is it's designed to help residents connect with their with their uh, other residents in the building or help them find things to do in the community if they don't know what to do in the in the area. And it helps. And it also their also their job is to set up of on site events for residents to participate in and get to know one another. Yeah. And this actually came out of, you know, when Isaac mentioned the early focus group that, that he was a part of, I did a lot of these focus groups. And at the time, what was really a prevalent piece was um, the HCBS settings rule and a lot of increased discussion around the real critical importance of decoupling housing and services that people get to make their choices about where they live and what their housing is separate from who their service provider is and what service they access. And, and we wholeheartedly, you know, 110% support that decoupling. And what we heard in focus groups is that people want their services and housing totally separate, that they can make those choices on their own. And they wanted somebody who understood that link between services and housing to help them navigate or fill in holes with services or help them address when their housing might not be meeting their access or their inclusion or their service needs. And so from that, and so we had a lot of discussions of like, you don't want, you don't want the thing where it's a, a more institutional model where you've got, you live at the place and everybody has the same service thing and it all kind of is, is bundled together, basically like a, a new institution in some ways. So we didn't want that, but you still kind of wanted somebody who helped, you know, navigate services. And this light went off of like, what we're talking about is essentially what luxury buildings have, um, which is this mm -hmm. concierge model of people want to live in their building and then have somebody who's connected to their housing, who exactly like Isaac said, helps connect them to the services that they need and desire, um, the community around them and their neighbors and events and programs and other opportunities um, that that they that they want to participate in. Um, we and, and that also, that. Okay, we always refer to that as the cruise director model, which we also yes. want to emulate <laughs> because we find that you know we are we're trying to tick off a lot of the boxes, right? We're we're talking about community integration. We're talking about real inclusive housing, but sometimes one of the stumbling blocks is socialization. So we think that it's really vital to have that um, you know, sort of service provided in the building so that it connects those dots, right? Absolutely. And now I'm curious, just so I kind of understand, um, are there are there folks in your pilot who are in fact looking for support 24 hours a day, or the or is it a sort of a the gamut of um, of needs? 
I'll share about our pilot and then Isaac can talk about how we think about different types of disabilities. But in terms of our pilot, um, just the individuals in that pilot do have more um, mild to moderate support needs. That's just the case. Um, however, in our um, ground up developments, we are very explicitly focused on making sure that the model, and this is why like the drop in offices and the wake overnight and our resident services model, we really want to make sure that um, folks, you know, I came from <laughs> this from a family member who used 24 hour care. Um, and so that was really fundamental because so many community based models, you know, talk about having to bring a certain level of like, you know, um, their own, you know, independence. And we, you know, think that interdependence is really important and that um, we want to make sure that community-based housing isn't just limited to some type of disability, but that actually we build in scaffolding so that um, people with moderate to significant, including 24-hour support needs can be included. You know what I'm really interested about, because you spoke about advocacy already, um, what does the future look like? What are your thoughts about um, changing policy, not just in California, but perhaps on a federal level? What needs to be done and how are we going to do it and, and can we help? You start and I'll go after. What needs to be done is all the voices coming together and having a voice at the table and continually to keep advocating for the issues that are most important to them because the louder our voices, the, the, the more likely our legislators are gonna hear us and, and, and are gonna take us seriously. And, and, and we work better at any, and you can do more as a team than you can as an individual. And do you wanna any of the policies that you can think of that we're asking for around increased funding? Yeah, increased funding for, for service uh, support people because that is something that's very important because these jobs don't pay a lot so then people don't stay very often and 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 and, and there are people out there with disabilities who who, who like to always uh, have the same person there all the time and always get to see the same person all the time because for for yeah for people with autism they have issues with change and change is hard and them having to go through one one uh person after another that's new in their in fund their on their support team is going to be a challenge for them and i've had to deal with that where i'm part of the regional center and i've had to have multiple different regional center workers and i hated that so now i've learned try not i've learned that try not to get used to the worker i have because of it because i know they're not going to likely be my worker for maybe very long or be there a few years down the road so i just know just that's my worker for now and then i deal with them at the moment and then if it, things change then i just accept it and move on to the next worker that i'm assigned yeah that, that and, and that actually goes back you. yeah i don't like that but i just gotten used to it because i've just got to because my because i've been working on in my life and working on dealing with change and dealing with things not being consistent which I would say that also your job at the Kelsey helps work on change too, because yeah. things move and change very fast at the Kelsey um, a lot. And I will just say on the on that piece too, going back to the inclusion concierge model, that also is really key for folks is like, can the inclusion concierge be the more consistency as people's individual service providers inevitably could change both based on because of the issues Isaac said that the field has a lot of turnover, but also because, um, because they're underpaid and undervalued, but also, 
because um, people service needs change too. And so the inclusion concierge can be some consistency as your individual providers may shift and, and look differently. Just to add on to, I think what Isaac, um, we have a couple of different like advocacy toolkits. And when we talk about advocacy, we talk about both like the jurisdiction of which that advocacy is happening and kind of the intervention area that that advocacy is focused on. So local, regional, state, and federal. Um, I'll come to your question specifically on federal and recognizing that I think it's important that as we talk about advocacy as it relates to housing and disability, we're talking, we talk about the triangle of community living at the Kelsey, that people need to have stable housing and robust supportive services, and that if those two are stabilized, then we get to the top goal, which is community life. And our policy advocacy work um, really either is focused on housing, you know, access and retention, or, you know, supportive service and funding for supportive services, and that we need to, those are two different audiences, you know, at the federal level, that's HUD versus HHS and Medicaid, and those both both need to be stabilized and we, um, you know, work in allyship with, you know, our um, allies and disability rights doing things like, you know, increased access to HCBS services and increased funding for HCBS home and community based services. That's on like the services side and better rates and, and better um, systems to support those services. On the housing side, some of our interventions are specifically around increasing subsidy for programs that explicitly support housing for people with disabilities. Um, and that can look like both, you know, project-based funding of 811, which is a disability-focused um, funding program at HUD that's, that's capital and project-based vouchers. Um, increased figuring out what incentives could we add into the low income housing tax credit program to increase incentives or targeting or increased accessibility um, for people with disabilities. Um, increasing voucher access and voucher utilization of people with disabilities. So vouchers that they would take themselves and be able to use wherever. And also increasing, increasing the awareness to disadvantaged communities about how to find out about the voucher program and where to go, because those communities always tend to have the least access, access, least access to the ability to know where the services are that they need. Yep. Yep. And increasing I'm equity. I'm so happy you said that, actually, because I was going to say, how do people find out what's out there? How do they find out the resources available to them? Um, and thank you for bringing that up. That was going to be my next question. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to answer anything on that? How do they find out the resources available? Resources, they can go look on the city's website is one way they can go, or they can go down to the un to the on uh, the office where all these services are 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 under for the for their county they where where housing authority housing authority and find out about that way yep so typically vouchers um, are going to be through your housing authority. Um, we do actually have a piece up in our web on our website um, in our Learn Center around just like housing navigation of just some links that is different in every jurisdiction, and maybe that could change over time. Um, but usually, it's um, vouchers are held within your housing authority, um, and there's some sort of waitlist there. And sometimes disability service organizations, especially for mainstream housing vouchers, will have an understanding of how to get on those lists or serve as referrals to those lists. 
Um, and then the other thing around some of like the, the 811 subsidies is like encouraging developers and jurisdictions to apply for those subsidies. They come from the federal government, but then um, states or developers can apply to be the recipient of those subsidies. And so making sure you know that they exist um, and are encouraging developers to use them or add them um, into their projects um, is, is really key. Um, and then I think the third thing is, you know, kind of what Isaac said around voices, one of the things that we really encourage around advocacy and on knowing what's out there is, you know, there is a robust, in every state pretty much, um, there is a robust um, housing development and housing advocacy infrastructure of um, affordable and market rate developers um, who are working on policy issues that help them build the kind of housing they want to build. And so one of the things is that while we want, you know, disability forward specific advocacy, a lot of that disability forward housing advocacy should be embedded in mainstream housing advocacy. So, you know, finding out who is your, you know, state affordable housing coalition or who is your, you know, regional you know, network of housing developers or things like that, and going to those tables and saying, hey, you're building housing. Are you including people with disabilities? And, and here's what it looks like to include people with disabilities um, and what you should be doing. Um, we actually created these housing design standards for accessibility and inclusion, which include both design and operation strategies for um, disability forward housing. Um, and so taking those, they're at the kelsey.org slash design, and taking those to developers and saying, hey, this is what it looks looks like to build inclusive housing. Can you add this to your developers that you're to your developments that you're creating um, or to your housing policies that you're advocating for? I think is really key that that we don't stand alone as a disability housing community, but we really inject that and infiltrate that um, into all housing development and advocacy. Okay, well, I think we would like to add our voices to yours and, and be a little louder. We are sort of wrapping up with our time here, but as you know, this is a podcast about change makers. Um, and we're, Jen and I are pretty fascinated um, in general with change makers, and we're hoping to inspire a few more uh, through the podcast. So we've developed this sort of lightning round um, in the hopes of learning a little bit more about each of you as a person. Um, and how you see the world, and um, and maybe we can inspire a couple other change makers out there. So we're hoping you'll indulge us and answer a few a few questions. Okay, Isaac, you on board? Yes. Okay, terrific. So, how about first one? Uh, which living person do you admire most? I'll go first. I admired my mom. She's the the, the, the my my main support person in my life, and the one who's who helped me before I, when I was a kid and when I was a child and wasn't able to help myself. And she helped me get the help I needed at that time in my life. And, and then she also helped me uh, when it get, helped me getting me diagnosed and finding out what my finding out that I had autism. And that was, and then I appreciate her for that. And she also taught me a lot of life lessons and a lot of things that I incorporate into my life. I've got, a, there's two mothers here in the room and we, that's the best answer ever. Good job. Thank you for you that. You slayed Because mom, moms are always the ones who are going to want best for their child with disabilities, wants the best for them and just wants them to be able to live in this world in whatever way they can and contribute to society when, in whatever ways, way they can. Your mom must be very proud, Isaac. Yes. 
And she never one, she never said one day when working with me throughout my life, she never gave up on me. She never just said as I'm done. I've just done with it. I've had it with this because she knows that this is, she knows that this is what she was uh born to do. I get it. I really do. I'll just take a chance on this one to I I have a lot of people um, that I admire, but um, I'll speak, you know, briefly on I think Lois Curtis is a really if you don't know who Lois Curtis is, I'll speak as specifically as um, impacting my work at the Kelsey. Um, she is a um, disabled black Georgian um, from Georgia, and she um, was um, one of the plaintiffs in the Olmstead ruling, which um, mandated the right to community living for people with disabilities. and. Um, I, I guess around not, I've never met, I've never had the opportunity to meet her, but I think in terms of somebody who has um, really impacted um, the trajectory of community living and therefore my work um, is, is a pretty remarkable, remarkable person. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Okay, next question. And um, Isaac, do you want to go first again? What okay. or who is the greatest love of your life? I might already know the answer, but go ahead. <laughs> The greatest love of my life, I would say, the uh, the the thing is my art. That's really important to me, and it and it's and it's one of those things that that I can use to show people my talents and show how creative I am, and show them that that uh, people with autism, people people with disabilities, can can do anything when you give them the chance and give them the tools and the and the support to allow them to do what they want to do. And, and I have to say, does your art be uh, featured at the at the Kelsey and with the no, art it's not. My art's not going to be featured there. Okay, my it's not. What well, there's? I have to think about how we could do that. Yeah. Isaac's art. That one of the cool places is if you ever come visit San Francisco and you're looking for a souvenir. What's the? You can if you go to San Francisco and you go to the ferry building, you go to this chocolate place called Rakuti's Confection. They have they have a store in the ferry building, and my chocolates are there on uh, on uh, designs that I did of icons of San Francisco that are that are that are on on uh, on uh, pieces of chocolate. And then you walk into the store; it's right there at the front of the store, and. And these and these were images that I actually took and I edited them on Photoshop to 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 uh to them to look like that with the with the exact with the with those colors in each section of the un of the un image and and then they got sent over to the company and then they did what they did to get it on the chocolates. It's pretty cool. And I just got married in September, so. I just got married in September, so I would have to say that the love of my life is my husband, which is <laughs> um, congratulations. Nice. Uh, yeah, so I'd say I'd say that. Plus, um, I our our collective love lately is gardening, um, which I do think is so funny. We have like access to like this much green space. It is a tiny little urban backyard, um, but I, I that's uh, also a key part of having that little space where you can grow our plants. Um, all right, last question, guys. You've been really good sports. Um, and maybe this this isn't a fair question. Of course, they have to say the Kelsey, but where would you most like to live? Well, I would most like to live in the uh, out over in uh, in this area of the Bay Area called Marin, Marin County. It's in a county in the Bay Area that's on the other side, the one underside the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. And I want to live there because they have a lot of hiking trails there and I really love to hike. And it's really, and I also like the weather out there during the summertime. I'm really a person who loves the heat. I love being out and about in the heat. And, 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 it's, a, and it's a very quiet uh, 
area it's also very un quiet out there too so it'd be a way to get a get get a break from the city you got to live somewhere in marin near the ferry though because you need yeah. public transit yeah i guess that would work if you were yeah. in marin on the ferry line yeah um Marin's not the bastion of public transit, so um, uh, noted. Uh, and <laughs> I uh, I love uh, San Francisco, so I live where I would where I would most love to live. I love this city, um, but I do think you know to the point of the Kelsey. Like I lived in Ireland for a little while, um, and it was like this real culture, like a culture of community and like knowing one another. Um, you knew your neighbors. People said hi to each other. Like it was just very much everybody kind of knew everyone everybody and that used to be our urban life like that's how cities started they were like full of immigrants and you know communities where people were bouncing into each other all the time and and getting to know one another so I'm hoping you know as we you know slowly emerge um, as we still deal with COVID but are coming out of that a bit um, I really want that to come back to our cities and that's what I really love that's embedded in the Kelsey is knowing your neighbors loving where you live you know having that identity and that community around you because because I think that's one thing that's missing um, but but we'll get there. You guys are really making us want to plan a trip to yeah. California and I do believe <laughs> you'll get there for sure. Yeah. <laughs> no question if you put your mind to something it's going to happen. Well, we can't thank you both enough for joining us today. I hope that um, I hope that you know we count ourselves as as friends and allies of of the work that you're doing, and um, and we're we're grateful for your expertise today. Yeah, thank you for one taking some time to spend with us today. Thank so there you. is one last thing that I want to mention. So I did mention sure. something about the regional center, but I didn't go into the detail about that. So what that is is it's uh, it's a place in Cal. It's a uh, a uh, place in California that's that's paid for by a uh, by a uh, by a Medicare. It's a mix of Medicare and but do, do you want to what, what, what it is is it's a uh, place where 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 if you have where you have a qualifying disability you can apply there to be able to get a regional center worker and then they will help you get the services that you need and it's for people with disabilities and they're twenty one one regional centers in the state of California and with that yeah yeah cool. That's a unique part of California policy, but they were kind of wrapping up. So is there any last things since they um, that we want to say thanks for being on? Thank you for having me on your podcast and thank you for letting me be able to share my views and and insights. Yeah, thanks for having yeah. us. And um, and you'll have to listen to Isaac's podcast. He's got what's your next episode going to be about? It's going to be about. Uh, Remember, we were talking about it yesterday. What's your next? Because it's April. Oh, yeah. It's going to be about an, an autism because Autism Awareness Month is this month. That's right. So Isaac hosts a podcast called Leaders for Inclusive Community, and he does them here and there. But um, there's a new episode coming around autism and housing. So stay tuned yeah. for, for him on the other side of the mic. But, um, yes. but we're really uh, grateful for you having us here today. Thanks. We can't wait. We'll check it out, Isaac. Yes. Thanks a bunch. Thank yep. you.